Welcome into the Deep Dive Bible Study. It's been far too long. Two weeks is a long break. I am sorry to say that I did that to you guys. But anyway, we're back with the Kings of Compromise, part 26. And we've got a lot of text to go through today. We're going through three chapters of the Bible. And if you are here for the first time, a great appreciation goes out to you. If you subscribe to the channel, click the like button and the notification bell. Get notified on your smartphone every time we go live. My name is Tim. This is Tim Hatch Live. And we are going to do Kings of Compromise. So today's topic is God gets the job done. Second Kings eight through 10, second Kings eight through 10. This is a lot of passage, right? There's a lot of scripture passage, long passage that we're talking about. So if you don't like Bible reading, this is not the episode for you, but if you do, you're going to love it. Here's why we're covering such a big chunk of scripture. It's a dark passage. It's a dark section. Uh, there's a lot of blood, a lot of gore, a lot of judgment of God, and it teaches us something. And I want to start off right with this thought. In our current generation, we have got a vision problem. It's, we're nearsighted. We only see. Is nearsighted the one where you only see close up? I always get those confused. Let's just assume that I'm right. And nearsighted means you only see close up. That's our culture. You only see close up. And you need to wide angle your lens. You need to get some prescription <laughs> spiritual lenses over your eyes to see long term in your life. And more importantly, in your family, in the generations that come after you and in the historical moment in which you reside in human history. One of the best benefits of studying the Bible is it reminds us of ancient times that were very uh, similar to us in the spiritual components, but very different to us in the natural components. And yet they teach us about the story that we are part of that began long before us. And then if you follow all the way to the Revelation uh, scriptures, they will carry on well after us, right? This, this is the beauty of Bible study. It gets you out of your moment by moment, second by second, scroll by scroll, you know, pull down, pull, pull down momentary existence in our modern world. And if I could just give you one admonition in the beginning of this talk, it is this. Learn to scroll, uh, I'm sorry, learn to zoom out on your life. You might be going through something right now. You might be under a boss, a leader, in a family condition, a situation, an employment situation, a relationship struggle, struggle and you think, this is just horrible. I, there's no leadership here. There's no, there's no fruitfulness here. There's no goodness here. I'm surrounded by immorality. I'm surrounded by all these hideous realities. This is it. And I have to tell you that it is not. Learn to zoom out your life. And I, this might be hard to hear. Even your life is not the point. You might be a generational setup for someone coming after you. You might have to bear under the weight of something in your, in your generation that a future generation will not have to deal with because you dealt with it. That's how God has always chosen to work. The struggles that Jesus faced and the church faced did not last for very long after the church grew in size and basically took over the Roman Empire in the third century AD. The religious freedoms that we enjoy in our country right now in, 20, in 21st century America or 21st century Western culture did not exist hundreds of years ago. Somebody bore the weight of that process to get us to where we are. And we have to zoom out. We have to wide angle lens our lives because we are so minute by minute, minute and second by second, that, that we flip out and lose our minds over the smallest little inconvenience that we face in the momentary afflictions of life. 
And so this is why all that to be said, all that to say this, these three chapters are important because they are, they are, they cover about, I think seven to 10 years of, of time. And they show us that God always gets the job done. He's doing something bigger than you. He's doing something bigger than America. He, he's doing something bigger than evangelicalism in modern day America. And, and, and this is an important, eye-opening, life-changing reality to get a hold of. Let me do something before we get to the text. I'm going to back up all the way to a very famous moment in 1 Kings chapter 19. It was the day that Elijah ran for his life from Jezebel. Remember the Mount Carmel chapter 18, he kills all the prophets, you know, fire from heaven, kills all the prophets. Jezebel says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you just like you killed my prophets. And Elijah, this mighty man of God in chapter 18, runs for his life in chapter 19. He runs 40 days into the wilderness. He runs into the cave at Mount Horeb and he says, God, kill me. I am ready to die. I'm done. And God shows up. And what happens? God commissions him. In verse 15 of chapter 19, he says, The Lord said to him, Go return your way on your way to the desert or wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Syria, Jehu, the son of Nishmi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu be put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Now, Pop quiz, pop quiz. How many of those three people did Elijah actually anoint? Answer, one. And he, and he does it in a couple of verses after this moment. The only person he anoints is Elijah. He does not anoint Jehu. He does not anoint Hazael. He failed on two of God's three commandments. And it's going to be Elisha who has to anoint Hazael, and he will in these chapters, and he has to anoint Jehu, and he will in these chapters. And those two men will bring about God's purposes of judgment upon Israel to accomplish his purposes generationally in the land. And I bring all that up to say this. It is not up to one person for God to get the job done. And that might not mean much, much to you, but I think it means a ton because it reminds us that even when we see leaders fail, whether they be pastors of mega or giga churches in our country or leaders that led us when we were young and are no longer in the faith today or parental leadership or uh, uh, civil leadership or employment leadership or even our own leadership and we fail and we don't do what God wants us to do and we come up short as all people eventually do in some way, shape or form. I am so glad that God is not reliant on one person to accomplish all of his purposes. If that was the case, we'd have every, every reason to get up, uh, give up hope. But, but that's not the truth. God always has the resources to get the job done. And that is the first point that I want to make. But you have to have a long-term vision. You have to have a wide-angle view of your life and your generation and where you fit into the story of God. And that brings all of this together with our conversation through the text. Okay, picking up the text where we left off last time. We are in 2 Kings chapter 8, and here's what it says. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had raised restored to life, arise, go depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Okay, a couple things. This is the woman who, if you remember, she was wealthy and she made a room for Elisha. This is the woman of Shunem. And she made a house for Elisha and 
a house or a room provided him with uh, furniture so he could come every time he came into town he could stay there she provided she put god first in her life now she gets a heads up from god that there is a famine coming on the land then she loses her land she goes and dwells in the philistines for seven years and she comes back and she's lost her land and she has to go to the king to appeal for her land um it's uh back in second Kings chapter four verse eight where all that happens just a quick reminder she was a wealthy woman and she fed elisha and she built a room onto her house for the holy man of god Basically, what this is reminding us is that this is the woman that put Elisha in a place of priority in her life because she saw that he was a man of God. She was, and I I have to say it, she was a tither. She put God first financially. She trusted God and honored God financially. And guess what? God watches out for her. Elisha gives her a heads up, seven years of famine, get yourself out of here, go find another place to live. And she does, but she's lost her land. Hey, what happens if you do something for God and then things go poorly for you and you lose? Well, just hold on. Wide angle lens. Zoom out on your life because God's not done yet. So t- let's get to the rest of the text. Verse four. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king about how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appeared or appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elijah, Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. This is unbelievable, because this is a godless king. This is Joram, the son of Ahab, and he's picking uh, Gehazi's ear about all the great stories and triumphs of Elisha's ministry. I don't know why Jehoram, uh, Joram is not a good man. He's not a godly man, but he must have been curious about God's work through Elisha. This is the king of Israel's. They all had kings of Israel. They all had this kind of on again, off again relationship with the prophets of God. But anyway, wouldn't you know that as he's hearing about God's work for her, raising her son to, to life from the dead, she walks in at the same exact moment. She arrives at the right time. Can, can I tell you, and I know I can because it's my podcast, and I will tell you, God can set things in motion for you perfectly when you trust him and put him first. That's the first big takeaway here. Put God first. He will take care of you. Sometimes you might struggle for a season. She got a word from the Lord. There's famine in the land. You got to up and leave everything. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't want to move because of a famine. But she does. She listens to God. She comes back. She has no land. Everything's gone. Maybe the king took it from her. And all hope looks lost. And she put God first financially. There's a test that you will experience when you tithe. And that is when you tithe and things don't get better financially. And things go a little bit worse uh, financially. You got to press on and trust that God is still working all things together for your good. That there will come a time where you will see a recompense. You will see the redemptive work of God in your life as this woman does. Anyway, that's just the beginning of the story. And the narrative really moves on from her and now deals with the kings of Israel, the kings of Syria, and uh, those two guys that Elijah failed to anoint. So let's go to chapter 8, verse 7. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when he was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go meet the man of God and acquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from the sickness? So Hazael went out to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of, of Damascus, 40 camel loads or camel's loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover from the sickness? So this is a pagan king 
who is now appealing to Elisha um, as to the results of his sickness. This is the king that sent Naaman to the king of Israel to get healed of, of leprosy. And then the king of Israel tore his clothes and said, I'm not God. And send him to, and then Elisha said, send him down here and I'll, I'll take care of it. Well, word got back, obviously, to the king of, Israel, of uh, Syria. And he knows that he has some power. Elisha has some power. So he goes to Elijah. He doesn't go to the king anymore. He's learned. Go to the prophet. Because it's not the kings that are in charge in Israel. It's the prophets. And that is a key biblical point. It is not the kings that are in charge of our world. It is the prophets of God and the word of God that rules and reigns over our world. So um, this guy sends a message to uh, Elisha with all kinds of goods and presents. He wants to bribe. Maybe a good word will come to him from Elisha. And this is not the case. Verse 10. And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Now, that's a strange sentence. You're going to recover, but you're going to die. And the reason why he's saying this is because Elisha knows what God is going to do. And what he's got going to do, we're going to read the rest of the text. Here's what it says. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. This is Elisha staring at the, um, the, um, the messenger from Hazael. And the man of God wept, and Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. This is a messenger. How could he do all those things? Here's why. Because Elisha knows that this is the next king of Syria. And this is the guy that Elijah should have anointed. Maybe this is why Elijah didn't want to anoint Hezael in the first place because he knew Hezael would actually turn his energies against the people of Israel. And Elijah didn't want harm to come upon Israel. But God's purposes and, prop and, and, and word must come to pass. So anyway, um, look at the response of Hezael because it's kind of funny. He says, what is your servant, verse 13, but a dog that he should do this great thing? He's like, oh, no, I, I could never rip open pregnant women. Oh, man, I wish. Like, what a sicko. Anyway, Elijah answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elijah and came to his masters who said to him, what did Elijah say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. There it is. Okay, so you won't die of this sickness. No, he won't. Because look what happens, look what happens in the very next verse, verse 15. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hezael became king in his place. So interestingly enough, the message that Elisha sends to Ben-Hadad through Hazael actually is accomplished through Hazael's quest for and lust for power, which Elisha prophesied he would receive. All this to say something very simple about the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord also works through human realities and human ambitions and motivations. The word of the Lord is fulfilled, but it was Hazael who jealously and selfishly claimed the throne for himself by assassinating his king. And, 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 and you think about this. This is an important principle for us to understand that God's will is accomplished through even the evil motivations of godless kings and godless leaders. God's purposes will prevail through it all, through the muck and mire of the human reality, the, the, the human community. Look, you, you can't expect God's will to be clean and perfect all the time. You can't expect it because the world is fallen and it's dark. And the God of this world is Satan. He's ruling over this world under the auspices of God's rulership of this world. And so when it comes to our government and our civil leaders and you get so frustrated with them and so angry with them, look, I understand, but they're never going to be perfect. And this country is never going to be perfect. And people are never going to be perfect until the perfect one appears. But, but you're, you're going to have to see leaders do things that are questionable, allow things that are questionable, enact laws that are questionable because the human condition is very complicated, very messy. And if you 
compound it with the expansion of populations of humans, it gets more complicated and messier by the generation. And God will use evil leaders to accomplish his good purposes. Anyway, moving on in the text, verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. So this is where the words and the names get confusing. So Joram is the son of Ahab, and he's reigning in Israel in the north. Now Jehoshaphat has a son, and he names him Jehoram, which is also another way of saying Joram. They're the same name. So they have the same name. And, And Jehoram is... But the ESV changes it to Jehoram for us to make it more clean. Jehoram is reigning in in Judah. He becomes king of Judah, verse 16 says he began to reign. And then verse 17, he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, that is a key line. He walked in the ways of who? The kings of Israel. The kings of Israel were the kings of Ahab, Omri's dynasty. Uh, it says, as the ha- house of Ahab done for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And there it is, uh, young people who you marry is so important to your spiritual reality and your spiritual growth. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So you have, remember Jehoshaphat, I call him Jehoshaphat the dingbat because Jehoshaphat is a gullible dupe to all of Ahab's, you know, quests for power and political maneuverings. And he follows Ahab into battle. And then he follows Joram into battle. And this Jehoshaphat, who is a godly king, has no discernment with these two evil kings uh, in Israel. And so and eventually his son marries into the family. This is what happens generationally. If you are gullible, if you are listening to the people of this world, your children are at stake. And some of you need to hear that word. You play games with the world in your generation. Your children will marry the world in their generation. You've got to be careful about these things. You've got to draw lines for your family, not be legalistic, not be super controlling, but have a value in your home where God is first. And uh, that's it. You're going to follow the Lord in this house. And we're going to, we're going to get rid of idolatry, get rid of immorality in our lives and in our home, because we're going to raise up godly children for the next generation. Again, that's having a wide angle lens on your life. Zoom out because it's not all about you. Anyway, going on, uh, verse 19, it says this, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. And then I got some verses up here underneath underneath this passage because I'm going to make a point. Um, The Lord's not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give him a lamp to him and his sons forever. Now that lamp was promised to David back in 1 Kings 11, or we were reminded about it. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36, yet to his son, I will give one tribe. This is when Solomon was engaging in rampant sexual immorality and idolatry. It says that David, my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. Uh, I, I bring you now to 2 Samuel chapter 7, because God actually showed me something new. And whenever I share, see some, something new as I'm doing a Bible study with you, I like to share the fact that it is new because I'm still learning some cool things about scripture and how God operates. When David takes the throne from Saul, remember Saul was a selfish, egotistical um, narcissist and, 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 he, and he ends up suicidal and God rejects him as king. His son never takes the throne. His family is basically set aside from leadership in Israel. Uh, And David from the tribe of Judah takes over. And God says something about David that he doesn't say about Saul. He says to David, I'm never going to take my lamp from you. I'm never going to take my love from you. I'm never going to remove your children from the anointed calling of being my people's king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 to 16, 
when he's talking about Solomon, David's son, okay, what does God say? I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, when he, when he sins, just put when he sins there, because that's what God is saying. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure bef forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How does God say he's going to discipline the sons of David? Notice the words with the rod of men. I'm going to discipline him with international issues, political issues. Enemies are going to come in. They're going to do some damage to the kingdom just to discipline my people. But, but I will never take my love away from them. Why am I emphasizing this? What, what does this have to do with you and with me? Has everything to do with us. What we are going to see, what we see here is that God has a different way of dealing with his children when they sin and dealing with those who aren't his children when, he, when they sin. You are either the house of Saul or the house of David. You're either in relationship with God through Saul, which is the powers of this world, narcissistic selfishness, and you're not in covenantal relationship with God, just like Saul wasn't, or you are under the auspices of the covenantal relationship that you have with God through the son of David, Jesus Christ. And if you are in that covenantal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son, God will treat you differently regarding your sins. You still sin just like the sons of Saul sin, the spiritual sons of Saul sin. But your sins are, are disciplined and God never takes his love away from you. God rejects those who are not in covenantal relationship with him on the basis of their sins. But God accepts you irregardless of your sins, regardless of your sins because of the covenant that he made with his son, Jesus Christ, that you receive by faith uh, through, uh, by grace, through faith in God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is very important for you to understand because so many Christians wrestle with, oh, God is going to totally cast me out of heaven. He's totally going to cast me out of the family. He's totally doing that right now. I'm going through so many things. I don't understand. It's just a matter of time before I lose my salvation and God is done with, wait, but are you in covenantal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ or not? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose again on the third day, and that he is Lord of lords and King of kings? Because if that's the truth for you, you are in a covenantal relationship with God that does not ever get annulled. You are safe, but you will be disciplined. Hebrews chapter 12, 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as, as a son. For what son is there that his father is not disciplined? Verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and, and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Here is what we have to understand about the pains, about the trials, about, the, about the, the consequences of our sins as sons and daughters of the living God. It is not a sign that you are rejected. It is a sign that you are accepted, but God is cleansing you and purifying you because he is, he is showing his love to you. And this is your reality. Like I said before, I will say it again. If you're in covenantal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus provides a better covenant than the covenant of the Old Testament. In, and we'll get to that later. And this is important because the kings of Israel are kind of a picture of the worldly sons, the, the, the carnal Christians that really aren't Christians. And the kings of uh, Judah are the covenantal members of the family of God through David. And God deals with them distinctly and differently because... He is true to his promises. Okay, let's move on.
Verse 20. Now, in his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah. Now, whose days are these? These are Jehoram's, Jehoram's the son of Jehoshaphat. This is the, the, the king of Judah. And he's going to be disciplined now. Remember, I just said, he's going to be, God will discipline his sons. He won't cast them away. He won't reject them, but he will discipline them. So how does God discipline the king of Judah? In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. And, jo- and then Joram passed over to Zaar with his chariots and rose by night. And he and his chariot commander struck the Edomites who surrounded him, but his army fled home. This is, this is a bad moment for the king of Judah. He goes and he kind of wins the battle, but his army <laughs> abandons him. He is being disciplined. It, and it goes on, verse 22. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the, king, in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. He is disciplined. He is not rejected, but he is definitely disciplined. And sometimes God's discipline, and this is going to be hard to hear, is God put you to death. <laughs> I mean, some people don't want to hear this, but it's true. Sometimes God puts you to death. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he talks about the new covenant that we have in in the blood of Jesus Christ? He says, some of you have not discerned the body of the Lord and you have not uh, repented of your sins. And now some of you have become sick and some of you have died. They didn't go to hell, but they were put to death under the discipline of the Lord for not following through in obedience. And that happens with God's covenantal people as it happens here with Joram. Okay, let's go on. Verse 25, it says this, in the 12th year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old, then he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was the who? Oh, this is so, this is so important. The granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Now, all, Omri is the fountainhead. If you don't remember anything about Ahab, remember that Ahab's father was Omri. And he's the fountainhead of all of this Baal worship and idol worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel, And you have Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, is marrying up with his granddaughter. This is generational curses. This is generational frustration and sin that goes from one, the father to the son, to the son, to the son. Because, again, people do not have a wide-angle lens on their life. There is this flirtation with sin in one generation. There is marrying it in the next generation. Verse 27, he walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done, for he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. Who you marry, young people, will affect you. Do not be misled and do not be deceived. So let's move on. Verse 28, it says this, he went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram and, the, and King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that, he had, that the Syrians had given him at Ramah. When he fought against Hazael, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, in the, uh, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. So, again, the names are confusing, but just understand that you got Jehoram in the north, south, king of Judah. He's dead. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> I even forget. Ahaziah, there we go. Ahaziah, his son, is now king in the south. You got Joram, the son of Ahab, who's in the north. He's a godless king, but they have this intergen- intermarriage happening, this intermarriage deal happening. And it's just a tight relationship. That's what the scripture is trying to get us to see. There is this tight, interconnected relationship with the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah. And this is never a, gr- this is a, this is never a good situation for God's people. Now we turn the, chap- the page to chapter 9 and let's follow the narrative from there. Because now judgment is going to come upon both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Um, 2 Kings 9, verse 1. Then Elijah the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil into your hand 
or in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu. Now there's there, there's the third guy. Remember you had, um, Elijah was supposed to anoint Elisha, which he does and Hazael, which he doesn't do and Jehu, which he doesn't do. So Elisha has to do what Elijah didn't do. So now we've got Jehu, and Jehu is going to be an instrument of judgment. When you think Jehu, think judgment. Because this guy is the Terminator. If there is a Terminator in the Bible, it is Jehu. <laughs> and, and he is a man's man, and he is powerful and zealous, and he's the ready-shoot-aim guy, totally in this text. So let's take a look more closely at how this narrative unfolds. Look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. This is not the Jehoshaphat who was king of Israel, Judah. This is a different Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a very common name back then. Anyway, this is what goes on now with Jehu. So the young man, the servant of the prophets, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in the council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said to which of us all? And he said to you, O commander. So he rose and went into the house and the young man poured oil on his head, saying to him, thus says the Lord, the king, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Now, please, please remember that this judgment that God talks about through Jehu was God's plan way back in 1 Kings Chapter 19, when Elijah had reached rock bottom and thought, there's no hope, as long as Ahab and Jezebel on the throne, there's nothing we can do, kill me, it's over. God is not done. Elijah was done, God is not done. God always gets the job done, okay? So this is Jehu's responsibility. Um, I have this here up on the screen just so we get some per perspective of where we are. Up at the top, we have the family tree from Saul. The tribe of Benjamin, then David takes over the throne. There's Solomon, Rehoboam. Um, what we are seeing here now is we are in this section from uh, Ahab, the house of Omri, Ahaziah in the north, uh, Jehoram in the south, Ahaziah takes over in the south, a different Ahaziah, and then Jehu now is king in the north. And I want to put up a little bit uh, clearer just so we get a picture because this all matters for us in terms of just wrapping our head around all the names and everything. And it's all confusing if you just read the text. So I, I thought graphics would help. Uh, 46 years happen from Omri who introduces Baal worship in, in large numbers in the northern Israel territory. Uh, 46 years from Omri all the way to Jehu, 46 years. Think about this, 46 years. And then look at the text that is covered in these 46 years. We, we, from the house of Omri up here, all the way down here to the end of Jehu's reign, you go from 1 Kings 16 to 2 Kings 10. A ton of Bible text is devoted to these 46 years and is very bloody and very dark and very immoral and very evil. And yet it's over. The reason why I bring all this up is to say, I know we are living in what seems to be incredibly evil times. And maybe we are living in the very last of the last days. Maybe we are, but maybe we aren't. Maybe there's hope. And maybe there is a future for us, okay? Wide angle lens, zoom out and see it from God's perspective. The, get a 30,000 foot view of your reality before you throw your hands up in the air and feel like the world is crashing around you and the sky is falling, okay? 
That's the point that I'm trying to make here in uh, just that graphic for you. Okay, let's go on. So Jehu is anointed, and um, the promise is the whole house of Israel, uh, Ahab, shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male bond free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Those were the previous kings in Israel. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. <laughs> this is total annihilation. What Elijah thought could not happen, um, Jehu's going to do. And he does do it. And... You think about our country right now. One of the big um, talking points that we think about in our country is deep state, deep state, deep state. This, you know, ruling class that is just completely tainted, completely corrupted. And they're calling the shots in Washington, D.C. And they're making alliances with foreign leaders and billionaires and all these people who are calling the shots in the puppeteers of our culture. And we think it's, the, 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 the evil is so permeated into every facet of our society. There is no hope. But yet there is. God always has a Jehu. He has a Terminator. He will take care of these things and he takes care of them good. Just wide angle lens, zoom out. Anyway, verse 11. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know the fellow in his talk. And they said, this is not true. Tell us now. So they know this is, this is a big deal. This is a prophet's messenger. Uh, this is the prophet, I'm sorry. And he said, well, thus and so he said to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him in the bare steps, on the bare steps, and, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. So right now you see the character of Jehu. He is a man's man. He, he's the guy who is the obvious leader, who everybody can see. This is the guy who should be in charge. And as soon as they hear even a whisper, even a whisper that he's going to be king, they take off their garments, they throw them on the floor, and just like Jesus will have the garments thrown before him at the... At the uh, uh, um, uh, triumphal entry in Matthew 21. So Jehu gets like this treatment in in Second uh, Kings chapter nine from his men. They're sick of Ahab. They're, this is a, this is another thing about courage in the time of go godlessness and darkness is, is that there's always people ready to follow courage. It just we need somebody to step up and be the anointed courage courageous one and follow suit. And that's what Jehu uh, emulates here for us. Uh, verse 14. Then Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat son of Nimshi conspired against Joram. Now Joram with all Israel had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. So he's fighting with Hazael because Hazael's causing trouble politically for Joram, the king of Israel. But the king, but King Joram had returned to the to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, "Is this your decision? Then let no one slip out of the city." Uh, to go tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel for Joram lay there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. So what you're seeing here is you're seeing the, the coordination, the coordinate, the, the um, uh, choreo choreography. There it is. The choreography of God, right? Joram gets sick. He goes back to Jezreel. Jezreel is the center of Ahab's, you know, rule and reign and, and influence on Israel. Who is coming to visit him but the king from the south, Ahaziah, these men who need judgment. The, the whole thing needs to be torn down to the, the ground. And God has choreographed this moment for Je Jehu to enact God's judgment. Verse 17. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel and he saw the company of Jehu as he came. And he said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send out to meet him and say, is it peace? 
So he's like, okay, I know that Jehu, he is a wild dude. He is a crazy guy. And so he sends a messenger. So the man, I love this next text. This is so awesome. So a man on horseback went out to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported saying, the messenger reached them, but he's not coming back. <laughs> this might not be funny to you. It's funny to me because Joram is saying, uh, Find out if Jehu's coming in peace. And the guy he sends just joins Jehu's vengeance against him because Jehu has that influence. Courage is followed. And the Lord's purposes are going to prevail in this text. It happens not once. It happens twice. Look at verse 19. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, Why or what? Do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And again, the watchman reported, he reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nishmi, for he drives furiously. And you just see this character. He is Mad Max and Arnold Schwarzenegger and, I don't know, <laughs> The Rock all in one. This is, a, this is a man's man, a zealous man, and he is ready to rock and roll for the purposes of God's judgment. Verse 21, Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and they went out to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now remember that? Naboth, the Jezreelite, that was the land that Ahab stole, put Naboth to death. Well, Jezebel really did it. She conspired and put Naboth to death to steal his vineyard for, for Ahab who wanted it as a garden for himself. Terrible story. And all this is going to take place. It's amazing how the sins of Jezebel and Ahab come back on their heads in the very place where uh, they did their most heinous act. So verse 22 says, And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be? So long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Okay, one thing I want to point out from this text is Jehu's phrase. He says in verse 22, What peace can there be as long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? God's people cannot dwell in peace with sin. And this is why Jehu is necessary. You cannot follow God and live in sin and live in peace. It is impossible. He will not let that happen. It is a, it is a profound yet simple statement on Jehu's part here that illustrates the reality that God will clean us up no matter what it takes because sin is a disgrace. It's, it's impossible to live with God and be in sin. Um, if you love sin now, you need to learn how to hate it because it's not going to heaven with you. <laughs> If you love sin on earth, it's not going to happen with you. And, I, and, 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 and you've got to understand that before it has such a hold on you that you start to really do damage generationally to your family because you love your sin. Anyway, verse 25, Jehu said to Big Bidkar, his aide, don't you love all these names? Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will pay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So, you know, Jehu's got the word of the Lord in him. He knows what God has said in the past. He knows that, that Ahab deserves judgment. Ahab's family deserves judgment. That, and, and by the way, 
This might come as a surprise to you, but Jezebel is still alive. We're going to find out in just a moment. But he is, re- he is enacting the Lord's vengeance as the Lord wanted it carried out. Powerful man, this Jehu. Not a good man, though. And, it, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Verse 27, it says this. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of ben- Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. By the way, I've been to Megiddo. Megiddo is an amazing place. It's this big, t- this big um, uh, sand- sandy hill that they have dug and excavated for decades. And it's got, I think they want to say, like 23 different cultures down through uh, the uh, excavations in Megiddo. Kind of like this cross uh, p- cross line of uh, generational um, wars in the ancient world. Fabulous place to visit if you go to, if you ever go to Israel. Anyway, verse twenty eight. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his father in the city of David. So there you go. He's ju- he's judged, but he's not going to be judged the way that the king of Israel is. Remember, I said that the kings of Judah are judged differently than the kings of Israel because there's a covenantal relationship with God through David. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. And uh, this is verse 30. It says this, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. Now, again, I I don't know if you're shocked, but you should be. (laughs) Jezebel is still alive. Can you believe this? God's patience with evil people. Does it frustrate you? It can frustrate me. Uh, This woman could not be more evil, and yet God has let her live right up into the last moment of Omri's dynasty. Uh, just, just profound. Um, look at what she does in verse 30. She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. What a hilarious and really tragic moment because um, I, I can't think of it as slipping out of my mind that the, the, the woman who goes from man to man. Oh, you might not know this movie, but I want to share it with you because it's on my mind. You ever see Tommy Boy and... Um, <laughs> The guy who pretends to be Tommy Boy's brother, or I'm sorry, stepbrother, because um, his father gets married to another woman. And it's, um, I forget who it is. But anyway, they get married and then she's really just booking him out of the business and she tries to steal all the shares of Callahan Auto. And then anyway, when it, it turns out that she's actually married to the guy who's pretending to be the, her son. And when his, her marriage ends because he's exposed for the fraud that he is and he's going to go to jail, she hooks up with um, the character that owns the uh, big auto parts supply uh, place. I don't know. I don't know if this, narr- this illustration is going nowhere because it's off the top of my head. But you get the idea. Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd's character. And she just kind of like, oh, she just goes to dinner with him. And she puts her arm on his arm. And she's like, oh, I like that. And she goes <laughs> right past her husband, who she says, basically, she's just leaving behind because she's found greener pastures with this powerful, you know, auto parts magnet. Hilarious. That's what Jezebel is. She is an opportunist. She is going with whoever can get her ahead. Oh, Jehu, hello. And she's like batting her eyes. She's got makeup on her. And he's like, hey, who's with me? And two eunuchs like us. And they throw her down. Like no, no compromise on Jehu's part. Anyway, (laughs) funny story. 
Verse 34, then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is the king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Ew. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his uh, servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat up the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say this is Jezebel. Isn't this amazing how God perfectly gets the job done exactly how he said it would happen. There's a recompense coming, people. There's a recompense coming no matter what the world makes you think or believe. Back in 1 Kings 21, this was what God prophesied concerning the house of Ahab. Every male, bond free in Israel, he's going to cut him off from Ahab's house. And it says uh, at the end of uh, verse 24, and belonging to Ahab who died, anyone belonging... To Ahab, who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So God's prophetic word from many chapters ago, many generations, many years ago, comes true. You might be tempted to give up on your world. You might be tempted to give up because you see the evil all around you. Don't. God is still in charge. There's a recompense coming. He is in complete control, and he will bring about perfect justice at the right time. Again, zoom out. Go wide angle on life because it's not, the story's not done yet. And we're not done yet. We're now finally just to chapter 10 of 2 Kings. Now, Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So Jehu wrote letters to seven, and sent, uh, I'm sorry. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing that your master's sons are with you, and they, there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set them on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? Um, so, so they know that their days are numbered, the 70 sons of Ahab. They know that this is not going to end well for them. And verse five, so he who was over the palace and he was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu saying, we are your servants and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a le second letter saying, if you, are not, if you are on my side and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. This is amazing because Je Jehu's courage and Jehu's zeal precedes him. And they don't want to appoint a king to fight against Jehu. They know that Jehu's going to kick their butts. And so they just hand over Ahab's 70 sons with their heads in baskets. This is the power of the zeal of the Lord in Jehu's uh, work. Uh, verse 8. When the messenger came and told them they had brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Like, let's send a message here. This is what happens when you mess with Jehu. Then in the morning when they went out, he stood and said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So, Eli so Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel all his great men and close friends and his priests until he left him none remaining. Total annihilation of this family. Verse 12, then he sent out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at Beth Eked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And he said, who are you? And they answered, we are, your, we are the relatives of Ahaziah. And we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. He said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them in the pit of Beth Eked, 42 persons and spared none of them. So what's happening here? Remember that 
that fatal marital alliance between the sons of uh, Jehoshaphat and the sons of Ahab? Jehu's taking care of that too. If you still are honoring the queen mother, you're dead. If you start honoring the house of Joram or the house of Ahab or the house of really the house of Omri, you're dead. And this is total wiping out of the deep state corruption in ancient Israel. Don't you wish God would do that right now in America? <laughs> anyway, verse 15. And when he departed from there, he met Jahanadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jahanadab answered, uh, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot and he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained of Ahab in Samaria. So he wiped him out according to the word that he spoke to Elijah. Uh, we don't really know who this Jehonadab is, except that he's the son of Rechab. Um, it's kind of unimportant, but the fact of the matter is we're just seeing the character of Jehu. He is going to fight the Lord's battles. He is going to do the Lord's work of judgment on other people. And he is not going to he is not going to stop until the job is done. Like I say, he is the Terminator. Remember, that's the theme of the Terminator movies. He doesn't stop until he kills you. And then he terminates himself. <laughs> Verse 18. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now, what is this? This is a ruse. Jehu is not just a mighty warrior with tremendous zeal for God's work, but he is also shrewd. Uh, something that Jesus asks us to be with the people of this world. So he kind of puts on a ruse for the priests of Baal. Because this evil is so pervasive, it's infected the kingship, it's infected the priest, priesthood, it's infected the people, everything. And you got to deal with the mess of the world with messy means sometimes. So verse 19, now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing for I have great sacrifice. I have a great sacrifice to offer Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. So, but Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. So he's got them all set up for death. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. So he's making sure that the judgment comes only upon those who worship Baal. And um, Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, the men who allows any of these whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. Verse 25. So as soon as he made an end of the offering of the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, go in and strike them all down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. Then they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Isn't that wonderful, by the way, that the, <laughs> the altar of Baal becomes a toilet? Isn't this wonderful? Like God is totally humiliating once and for all Baal worship in the land of Israel. It is a thorough purification of the nation. The summation is in verse 38. And you're going to be shocked by what it says here because you would think Jehu certainly is the one good righteous king of Israel and you would be wrong. And why is that? Because of an issue that several people have in their service to God. And I'm going to point it out in just a moment. Verse 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. 
And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to the walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Now let's take a moment and let us draw a distinction between the sons of the, the sins of Ahab and the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, remember, is the, the worker that was given half the kingdom, really 10 tribes, while Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was ruining things. And he built two places of sacrifice because he was afraid, remember, for his own kingdom, that people would go back to Jerusalem and worship the Yahweh. So he created two places where he put two calves to worship the God of Israel through those false altars. That is a sin, but it's not as bad as the sin of Baal worship, which was a complete abandonment of God. You didn't worship God, you worshiped Baal. And yet Jehu is a, a classic picture of people who, um, they get so committed to God's work through them, they forget that God wants to do, do a work in them. And so Jehu as much as he was zealous to wipe out Baal worship, he doesn't deal with the sin of idol worship in his heart. That's where a lot of people are in the church today. That's where a lot of people are. A lot of leaders in the church are today. They, they want God to do a work through them and they're zealous and they're passionate and they're powerful. But ultimately, they don't let God do a work in them. What does Paul say? He says, I beat my body. I make it my slave, lest after I'm preaching to others, I myself am disqualified. I cannot just do work for God. I must be the work of God in my own life. Anyway, summing up, promises kept. Promises kept. Verse 21, 21 uh, of chapter 21 of 1 Kings. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you and utterly burn you up and cut off Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. Uh, verse 32, we're not done. It says this, and this is the last couple of verses we will read. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, the Mas Manassehites from Ar, which is by the valley of Arnon, which, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all that his might, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place the time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Wow. A lot of text. Didn't I say that? So let's tap into some truth and close out this episode. As I said from the beginning, I'm going to say it again. God gets the job done. That is primarily what these three chapters are about. What Elijah failed to do, God got done. And that means that God's work is not dependent on you. And as much as he wants to use you, if you don't step up to the plate and do what he wants you to do, he will find somebody else to do it. What does, what does Mordecai say to Esther when she doesn't want to go to the king? He says, don't you realize that you are here for such a time as this? And if you don't step up, deliverance from the Jews will rise from another place. But, but God will not have mercy on you. God gets his job done. God gets his job done. And I'm so glad about that. Um, we learn from the very first picture in these three chapters, the story of the, the woman who put God first and she lost her property. And that is another truth we want to tap into is that obedience to God can bring forth both problems and providential care in our lives. She, she put God first. She provided for Elisha's uh, life and uh, well-being. And she got a son. And then she lost everything. She lost her property. And she went through a famine. And she had to move. And, and she had to relocate. And sometimes obeying God leads to both problems and providential care. But ultimately, we understand this from her story. God looks after those who 
Look after his word and the messengers of his word. That's the widow story. Lost in the, under the big picture, you know, geopolitical issues of this generation is this faithful woman who serves God's prophet and honors God's word. And that's what God is asking you and me to do. You know, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he's my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. God watches out for those who watch out for his word, who trust his word and who honor his word, who honor his word, who pay the, the bill to get his word out there through tithes and offerings. God takes care of people like that. That's really what her story is about. Next, the covenant is our covering. We've already talked about this. God's dealings with Judah are different than his dealings with Israel. Why? Because there was a covenantal agreement with David. David is the son of, the true son of David is Jesus Christ, and we have come into a new covenant through Jesus Christ, God, David's son, but ultimately God's son. And he said in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You are covenantally covered. Isn't that beautiful to know? Yes, God will discipline you. God will chastise you as a son, as a daughter, but he does not abandon you. He does not remove his love from you. You might have to go through some seasons where he is chiseling you. You might have to lose some things, like the woman had to lose seven years in her own house. But God can restore it. God can bring you back. And God, if necessary, can put you to death before you ruin everything. <laughs> I don't want that to be for you. I shouldn't be laughing at that point. It just came into my mind and I said it. But the Lord has a covenantal covering for you, for his people. We also now know from the life of Ahab and this generation that lasts, for, this, this intergenerational uh, house of Omri, which lasts 46 years. 46 years. Think about it. I'm 46 years old. So this is like Omri's reign started when I was born, and now Jezebel has just been put to death in this year. 70, 1976, long time ago. And yet it's over. Idolatry does not last idolatry doesn't last. Whatever a generation is worshiping now will not last into future generations. There was a time when we worshiped kings and princes. We don't worship those people anymore. Now we worship celebrities, but that's, there's coming a time when we won't worship them anymore. Whatever our world is worshiping is temporary because it's empty and it cannot and will not last. The last thing that I want to share in um, tapping into truth is Jehu's zeal. And I touched on this a little bit. I want to touch on it again. I want to look at his character because it's a lesson in professional zeal without personal, personal commitment to God. Uh, first thing, Je Jehu quickly responded to God's calling. Second thing, he passionately did God's work. Third, third thing, he removed the idolatry. He knew idolatry was evil and he wiped it out of Israel he showed discernment in dealing with Baal's priests and worshipers. I mean, he was a shrewd man used by God to do God's purposes. However, he lacked personal zeal. He was used, to, he was used of God, but not truly committed to God. And that is an unfortunate reality for so many of uh, you know, Christian leaders uh, civic leaders, rulers, presidents used of God, but not committed to God. I know there's a lot of Trump fans probably that watch this show. There's no way you can say that Trump is a Christian. A man who says, I have no, nothing to um, apologize for to God, you know, he's not a Christian. <laughs> 
But could he be used by God? Sure. And I pray that he comes to Christ. I, I pray that Joe Biden comes to Christ. I pray that Kamala Harris comes to Christ. Everybody. We don't want anyone to go to hell. No one. But there's a potential for, and especially in the church, you've got professional zeal, but not personal commitment to God. Be careful of that. Because the last truth I want to leave you with is this. Inward commitment to God always trumps outward performance for God. There's an old saying, talent can take you where character cannot keep you. And I would say commitment to your calling can, can, can take you to where a lack of conviction over your personal sins cannot sustain you. You, you don't want to get so caught up in the work for God that you don't remind yourself you are a work of God and that he is doing work in you as much as he wants to do work through you. And so sometimes the problem comes and the pain comes and the challenges come and the famine comes and we've been doing God's work and we think, what on earth, what, what's going on? Is this, am I, have I failed? No, no, no. He's doing work in you. He's chastising you. He's, he's changing you. He's transforming you. And that is a good thing so that you can be fruitful in ways you never thought possible. Put God first in here so that what's in here flows out to everything around you. That is 2 Kings 8, 9, and 10. All three chapters. Hey, do me a favor. Like, share, subscribe, as we always say at the end of every episode. Like the video, please. Helps the algorithm. Share the video on social media. Get somebody some blessing by sharing with them Bible study on their, on their social media channel. And uh, subscribe. Support the channel. Cash app Tim Hash Live or timhashlive.com slash support. If you have benefited from this conversation, I would appreciate your financial contribution so that we can put it into marketing, put it into expanding. We are expanding. We are always putting more ideas together for the channel. Um, and I am not drawing a salary from this channel at all. This is a labor of love. And so thank you for supporting the channel if that is you. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great night. And remember that God always gets the job done. Uh -huh.